You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco. Business unusual. Hey guys, um, thanks for joining us today on this podcast. I just wanted to go through and just explain our goal of the Business Unusual podcast and, and really what we're trying to achieve at Topco. We're looking at helping organizations within South Africa and, and seeing how we can grow and do more business. And the way that we see that we can do that is by putting you in touch with those organizations that are shooting the lights out, those organizations that are blowing up their sales through their customer service, through innovation. What we've decided to do is to obviously you know, share these insights, these, these critical interviews of these business leaders from Africa and around the world. And, and we do that through these podcasts, through our newsletter, and through our summits and awards. You know, for us, we're about introducing you to a trusted network of great companies in Africa. So guys, go to the platform, look it up. There's some great podcasts, there's some newsletters that you should be part of, but there's also some great events that you should either be looking to get involved in, and and, uh, if you're needing help being introduced to someone, hit me up. Thanks, guys. Today, joining me, I've, I've got um, Andrew Smith, who's the CEO of Yuppie Chef. Used to be yuppiechef.com, it's just Yuppie Chef. He's also, well, they are the National Business of the Year for Top Digital Company um, at last year's awards. So, welcome, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Good name, eh? Business Unusual. Would you agree? <laughs> It is an unusual time. I heard a great um, one of our team members came came up with the line "Corona Coaster." Well, maybe it wasn't her line, but but really, it has been a it has been very high highs and very low lows in the last few months. But here we are doing our best to to keep going. For sure. So, I mean, just just getting into it. Obviously, one of the the great things about your organisation is you've gone of sort of made it in digital, made it in e-commerce. I know you've got some views on that. And then you've pivoted to retail. I worked in retail for about five years. So I know how exciting, addictive, and, and fun it is. But um, I suppose the first thing on mine is, is, is how are you coping with the current situation with the lockdown? Is it something that's sort of on hold at the moment? Where are you seeing retail? It's quite interesting that you, you know, you ask that question now because obviously we, we've had stores for about three years now. And in those three years, I would get asked all the time about opening stores. And in the last three months, um, stores have either been closed or it's just all been back talking about e-commerce again because um, that's, that's where, you know, e-commerce has taken such a huge, around the world and in South Africa, a massive jump forward in these three months. So now kind of talking about stores and why we open stores feels a little bit out of date and a little bit archaic because um, it, it does seem like the, the world has, has shifted again. And we, when, 
when the lockdown started in South Africa, which I think was the 27th of May, uh, March, somewhere around there, yeah. um, we, our stores all closed and then opened again on the 1st of June. So that was a long period where we were back to being 100%, uh, 100% online, 100% digital company. And um, where we were at at that time, we have seven stores uh, at the moment, two in Johannesburg and and five in Cape Town. But our online sales are still the majority of what we were doing. And so um, when we go from, you know, when the stores close down, well then when they open again, but people are a bit more reticent to go out into, uh, into particularly the big shopping centers and things, our online was already a big part of our business. And so that's seen a lot of growth. And what you see with a lot of other retailers in South Africa is that retail is maybe one or two or 3%. And so even if it triples for them in this um, kind of, COVID time, heading into post-COVID time, it's going from 1% to 3% or 2% to 6%. You know, it's still, it's, it's not enough to see them through this time. For us, um, because online was, was still the majority before, um, we're, in a, we're in a healthy position. But it is obviously where we now have to decide like, how, how much is this accelerated and where we're at. Um, we, we've opened stores for the last three years, but it looks like this year we won't open any stores uh, because there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of um, things happening in the market. And, and even now with a lot of retailers who are, are, haven't opened back up again, um, a lot of little guys who just decided that's it, they're done, they're not going to renew the leases or they can't afford to come back or they're finished. And then we've also got big retailers taking strain and, and it is probably being the, the biggest example of South African retail where we're going to see a major shift coming. So, so the, the reticence to, to push forwards too strongly in a physical retail right now um, is certainly a short term, but longer term, I don't know, is they going to go back to something? How, how, how much has changed in the, in the That's relationship? what I want to ask you. What do you, oh, what do you, I, thought you I thought you had the answer <laughs> to that. Uh, no, we, we have to, well, we've, we've been trying to survive. That's what the last three, three months has been, is like a, just how do you get through this day to day and where we go in the longer term. That obviously needs, needs some more planning and thought. And, and surviving at the moment, I mean, obviously it's not just you, it's your partner, but your team. I mean, how did you, and I know that you pivoted fairly quickly. You reached out to like restaurants and you were selling other goods. And it's pretty impressive what you've done already. I know it must have been stressful because I've been in a similar type of situation. Um, what, was your, what was your game plan? What was your, your sort of strategy with the team? How you did that? What you decided to do? Hmm. Was there a plan? Well, there were plans, but I mean, things changed so quickly. We, and, and we had, the plan, I suppose, was, was to adapt and adjust as quickly as we could and to do that, do that every day. We, certainly, it's been the hardest work that I think any of us have ever done um, because on the, yeah, <laughs> many, many war wounds. Um, so as the, as the lockdown was announced, in those first few days, we didn't actually know what was going to be allowed. And I think Friday was the first day of lockdown. We went zero, nothing. And then we kind of tried to see what was happening. And it seemed apparent that you could sell food and cleaning goods. That was allowed under what we now call level five of, of lockdown. And so we had to then rapidly change our, our site and our systems and everything to allow the sale of just a certain subset of products. So that was the first thing that we did. And I think by about the Monday or the Tuesday after the lockdown, we could open back up again and say, um, these things you can buy and we'll ship them to you now. These other things will still let you check out and pay for them, 
but we'll only be able to um, ship them to you after lockdown. Remember those, those days when we thought there was such a thing as after lockdown, um, because um, we didn't necessarily that time know where it was going to go. So, so we had a, uh, a, a major shift in the systems and things to allow that to happen. But food, uh, food and drink and cleaning products was a tiny, a tiny piece of our business. It's certainly not, not the majority. Um, so we wanted to try and add to that. And the first thing that we, that we added was, um, as you said, the, more the supply to the restaurant industry. So one of, our, one of our suppliers who supplied a few things to us, but the majority of the business was ingredients to top-end restaurants, and um, they're called Wild Peacock. Uh, and, and what I think you found a lot during this time was that, um, you know, you've got a supply and you've got a demand, but the, the links between them have been disrupted and broken. So people still are eating food, but a, a portion of what we ate used to be through restaurants. And now none of it could be through restaurants, but that supply still exists, but people still have the same amount of calories that they need to ingest. So how do we kind of reconfigure the pipes to get that supply to the customers? And uh, so we, we hooked up with, with Wild Pico, they've got refrigerated trucks and they could, um, they could then deliver straight to customers' homes, you know, fresh food and meat and mussels and, and uh, oysters and, and, and all sorts of things that we would not be able to do, but we kind oh, of hope imagine. And, and I think you saw that across, I mean, there was a worldwide shortage of yeast. And, mm. and, I, and I don't think that that's because the world was necessarily eating more yeast, but if you think of how yeast is consumed in the market, you know, all the pizza chains, they will probably buy yeast in like thousand kg bags. When you and I buy yeast in the supermarkets in like a 10 gram bag. So you've got, you've got the supply, which is those, those supplies can't suddenly shift and get it into our house because now we're making our own pizza instead of buying it from the shops. So I think there's been a lot of opportunity in the last few months to, for people who've been able to connect um, the supply with the demand in, in new ways. And obviously e-commerce and online businesses are, are businesses that are able to adapt quite quickly because you're not having to sit, uh, kit out a whole storefront or multiple storefronts around the country and change the supply. You can kind of can reconfigure your website and, and, and plug those together. So you've obviously seen a, a boon in that. So that was in the first few weeks. And then as lockdown, the different layers of lockdown unfolded, we then could turn on more of our, our, um, our range. Uh, and then we hit the, the real chaos of just the operational difficulties of we had uh, we'd taken a lot of orders during lockdown, telling customers we'll ship it after lockdown. And then when, when we were allowed to, I mean, on the day that e-commerce is now, you know, go for e-commerce, I think we got 900 emails in one day, people saying, where's my order? You know, like today, uh, if you're now allowed to deliver it, so where is it? And obviously, we still had immense customer service. So you yeah. had uh, <laughs> big, big, big shoes to fill. It was it, it was a really challenging time because you know we never like to um, dealing with customers. We never like to pass the blame onto you know we're not going to blame the the supplier or the courier company or anything. It's it's our fault. You know we're responsible. But the reality was that we had this incredibly uh, disrupted supply chain. Or, you know, we, we deal with 400 suppliers of, of, our, of our products, our goods locally, and they were in all sorts of states of trying to deal with you know, getting their workforce back and, and who was allowed to come back and who of them had comorbidities and old people and couldn't come back. And, and, and so just getting the stock that we, we needed into our business was really complicated. And then our own operational difficulties of, uh, of getting people into work and, and the, you know, creating multiple shifts so we could split the team up and, and providing the own transport because there wasn't any public transport and you know, all of the safety protocols and all of that. And then 
once it gets out of our building, handing it over to the courier companies, and they had their own difficulties and they had their different sort of problems. And so we, we, we disappointed a lot of customers uh, and we still are. I mean, there's still many disappointed customers out there and that has been one of the hardest things for us to, um, us to deal with. How do, you yeah. how do you resolve those unhappy customers at the moment? I mean, how you, cause you, you're not in the business of blaming, but obviously you have to do something. What are you doing? Well, I think that what it exposed for us primarily is, is which parts of our business weren't able to scale. So, you know, the first thing, you, you can only apologize so much. You've got to get the thing to the customer's door. And so, or you've got to, you've got to respond to what they're asking. And those are the two main things. So we, we, we made a lot of changes just in our, our, our warehouse and the way that that operates. Um, uh, you know, we don't normally have to scale in like a June, July time. And often the way that we scale is we bring in lots of, uh, you know, temporary workers, but you don't want to do that uh, during a, a pandemic. You don't want people you don't know coming into buildings. So we, we had to be a lot more careful about how we brought extra hands in and, and how we were able to scale without just throwing more people into one physical space. So um, trying, to, trying to look for efficiencies in our, uh, in our operations. And then from a customer support side as well, you know, bringing on, on, on extra people to answer those customer queries uh, in, in a way which is, um, we've got to get people up to speed very quickly and, and figure out how you can kind of chunk those things up into, normally our customer service agents can, can handle any type of query, but that's not very scalable because you have to train someone of how to handle any type of query. So it's having to kind of break it down into, into buckets of work that if I train you, Rolf, just how to answer this type of query and then I give you that bucket of queries and you can answer those. So, so we've had a rapid uh, period expertise. of scale. So it's expertise in, in problems, really, that you trained on expertise yeah. and how to deal with those problems. Okay. Yeah, well, we're kind of breaking down a, um, I think this is the, 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 the real the principle of scale is is you you kind of break things down into into a repeatable process and then if I need to scale this part up three times but this part only up one or two times you know I can do that separately rather than just saying well we just have people who can do everything it's it's trying to kind of create some buckets of speciality that you can scale and you know bearing in mind that a lot of our our customer support and a lot of our fulfillment was now happening through the stores with our seven stores around the country that's where a lot of customers we're getting their problems solved and, and during lockdown, the, the real lockdown, uh, April and May, that wasn't happening. So we, so we had this kind of major shift in, in how we could answer uh, customers' queries and how we could support them. And, and I think one of the comforts was that we weren't alone. Um, you know, you'd look at any, any retailer, just about any brand, uh, their social media presence, it's, it's, they, they, everyone's taken a pounding. And, and I think that's also because Customers have been under a huge amount of stress and pressure, and and so this is a way that I can I can I can release some of that stress and pressure on 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 someone I've paid money to because they have to take it. So we know that we've been uh, we've been victims of that as well. Yeah. I noticed when I went cycling on the road, I noticed the drivers got a little bit closer than usual. Like <laughs> I was suddenly their boxing bag um, as a cyclist or a runner. Yeah. So I mean. So obviously, everybody was under a bit of pressure. You've looked like you've done some exciting things. I mean, there's, there's buckets of scale that's quite exciting for any business to look at because you're looking at efficiencies. But I mean, was there anyone that you saw locally that you felt was doing inspiring you? Were you seeing areas of, of inspiration from the local market or were you more looking internationally and seeing 
opportunities yeah. then? Do you look? At yeah, I mean, I, it's it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting question because I think that um, to an extent there just wasn't time to 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 look. But but what what, what I did find interesting in this um, maybe not so much inspiration but definitely encouragement was how how many relationships were either strengthened or formed in this time, mm. and uh, and it just felt like that people were more willing to to reach out. So so right in the beginning of lockdown. I suddenly kind of was 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 mining my contacts for what are you doing? You know, how are you operating? How are you opening? Are you opening your stores? What are you doing digitally? Are you able to deliver? And and how I think a lot of those relationships were accelerated rapidly. And just to 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 learn from other companies, not because necessarily any of them were shining lights. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm sure they were in different ways, but more a sense of solidarity. And and it's interesting how how quickly that ramped up and how um, quickly it looks like it could fall back down again if, we, if, we, if we're not deliberate to maintain it. Uh, my sister, uh, sorry, my wife is actually one of six. She's got six siblings or five siblings in her around the world. And, and they set up um, these regular uh, Zoom calls with their family all over the world. And that was working really well. But it's suddenly become a lot harder as people have started going back to work and they've got other engagements and, and oh, sorry, I can't make today's call because I've, I've got this other thing that, you know, as the world's opened back up, some of those relationships are, 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 are struggling a little bit. So I, I think that, that in, this, in this time, I've, I've connected with a lot of other retailers, physical retailers and, and uh, who, who are also doing online and, and figuring that out and, and, uh, and a sense of, of let's put competition aside, not that we're even necessarily competing with all of them, but yeah. let's put that aside and, and let's figure out how to survive this together. And, and that's been a, it's been quite an exciting thing. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that that's good. And, and I mean, do you think that you, you got some of that because when you went into retail, you didn't have that experience of retail. And so you almost, you learned to be brave or leave your ego behind and sort of reach out to people and ask for advice, how things are going. Do you think that, I mean, yeah, I mean, there could be that. The, the interesting thing with, with physical retail is I'm actually on the, the board of the South African Council of Shopping Centres. Um, and, and so I'm quite new to this retail and shopping centres. But I think because, because we had a bit of an online story, I, uh, they asked me to get involved in that. And yeah. I think I found that, that in physical retail, there, there is a lot more, there's a lot more of a sense of, of, of sharing and openness maybe because there's, a, there's less of a sense of competition. And particularly if you think of shopping centers, you know, if, if a shopping center in one city or one area gives advice to one in another city or another area, they're not, you know, that why not? Why don't we make retail better? And, and online is, a, is pretty cutthroat because we're, we're very close together. I can just open a new tab and go shop with you. And, uh, and so the, the competition in, the, in the, the digital space potentially makes uh, makes less of a collaboration and less of a of a sharing. So I think it's it, it's maybe not unique to us. It's maybe more just the that that retail, at least retail in South Africa, does seem to be more more supportive. And you you see a lot of movement as well. People who used to work in in the the kind of landlord type of of space are now in the retail space, or vice versa, or that move between properties or between retailers. And so because anyone. And next year might be working for someone else. Everyone seems quite friendly and, and you know willing to share and willing to be open, which I I really appreciated that um, that part of our industry. Yeah, I think we all need it, right? I think it's brought out sort of the best in us to listen to other people, hear their views, and be a bit empathetic. So, I, I mean, 
I mean, what do you think of the skills needed for the digital landscape? Because what I'm seeing is that you obviously had a lot of skills in terms of building a, a, an e-commerce business. You have a lot of retailers who are now driving towards e-commerce. You have that expertise. One of the challenges that I've seen in South Africa is there isn't that many organizations doing e-commerce well. I think you mentioned it as well. How do we upskill the, the, the people so that we can take advantage from this opportunity? What are you seeing as yeah. a way of doing that? Yeah, it is. It is. It is not to do all of it. Yeah, it is. A, it is a real challenge, and we. Um, I say we. So Shane and I, who started Yappy Chef, we before that we were doing, uh, we we're building websites, doing e-commerce, doing online marketing for other companies, and we Yappy Chef was kind of born out of us wanting to do something for ourselves, and so we got it. We kind of went that way around into it. I think one of the. Um, the, the, the challenges for retailers in South Africa, because, you know, most of e-commerce, most of the growth in e-commerce, particularly in South Africa, is going to come from, from retailers who, who invest in, in online, um, because, because that's where the majority of retail is in South Africa. And, and it's difficult, because I think that going, if you are a tech person going to work for a South African retailer versus going to work for a South African tech company, or even an international tech company, it's quite hard to attract that talent. Uh, it's quite hard to, to make it as, as appealing, particularly because for retailers in South Africa, e-commerce is only 1% or 2%. It's not even the major thing. You know, if you, if you proportionately allocate time around the boardroom table or around the exec table, you know, e-commerce is going to get a few minutes in the, in the hour-long meeting. There are some forward-thinking retailers who are obviously over-investing, but even if you over-invest, it's still a small part of part of the business. So I think that over the last few few years, it's been difficult for for retailers to to attract you know really good internal teams. And I don't think that e-commerce is something that you can really outsource. If you do, it becomes a separate part of your. It's a separate thing. And I, and I think the my view of of or our view of omni-channel retail is not. Uh, that you sell online and you sell in a store, but omnichannel retail is that we are a single company um, because the customer sees us as a single company. So we need to operate as a single company and everything needs to be one platform, one, one process. If I walk into a store and I deal with a, 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 an assistant in the store, I should get the same message, the same, um, same capabilities as if I phone the call center. They, they, I should be able to handle a return or, or look up what's on a voucher or help me with my registry, whichever channel I work through. And if you've outsourced e-commerce and it's been done somewhere else, it's just never going to be as integrated as if it's done internally. But the challenge is that internally, how do you build that expertise? So I, I do think it's a very difficult problem. I think the advantage potentially that we have right now is this acceleration that's happened. And if we can maintain that acceleration, that if I've heard from certain retailers that, you know, e-commerce was 3% now, it's 10% or 15%, like suddenly it's significant. Suddenly it's a big part of the business, which are, will we now actually invest enough um, into this part of our business? And maybe that over time stimulates the, the skills development that's needed. So, I mean, what informed the thinking to move to retail? Was it the numbers? Was it the money? Is it that? Because, I mean, you started off in digital, so you saw a digital future. Um, so, I mean, I mean, how did you how did you get to the omni sort of idea? What, what informed that? What happened? Is, was there a yeah. story behind that? 
some pain. Yeah, yeah. No, they, well, this is the story I've been used to telling for a few years, and suddenly, suddenly people aren't as interested in the story uh, in the last few months. But yeah, I mean, the story goes that we were uh, we started online, and we certainly believed that that e-commerce was the future. We even we had this line um, that we've been quoted quoted saying is that in ten years' time nobody will go to a physical store to buy something they know they need. And that was about 10 years ago. And you know what? People still go to physical stores. So I think we were kind of, we weren't wrong to think that, that, uh, that e-commerce and online was going to be big. I just think we were wrong to think that it was going to completely dominate everything else um, as quickly as it was. And, and if you look at digital transformation in certain categories, if I, if, let, let's talk about, um, you know, post writing a letter uh, and, and you do that, and we've been doing that for a hundred years, and suddenly email comes along. Mm-hmm. And once you've sent one email, you're like, I never want to write a letter and go to the post office ever again in my life. It is such a radical transformation that I never want to go back. Or, um, you know, going into a bank and dealing with a, a, a bank branch to do something like, um, you know, trans- make a payment or transfer money or whatever it is. Once you've experienced online banking, you never want to go back again. It's just, it's so radically better on, on every category that you just, that's it, I'm done. I'm done with ever going into a bank. Once we've shopped online, we go back to shopping in stores. It's not, from a customer's perspective, it's not like, wow, you know, I've been shopping in physical stores for the last 40 years of my life. Yesterday, I shopped online for the first time. I'm never going into a physical store again. It's just not that much of a, of, a, of a radical difference that it's going to wipe out the other channel. And I think that's where we, we perhaps got it wrong, is that we just thought that this was so obvious um, that, it was, that it was going to take over. And, you know, we, Yapishev was, so we're 14 years old now, so go back to the three or four years. We've been doing this for 10 years. And e-commerce is, is still, was still only 1%, 2% of retail in South Africa. And you think, like, why are, we, why are we so stubbornly refusing to serve the other 98% of retail in South Africa? And, and we would meet people, and I would say, um, I say, what do you do? And I say, oh, I work at Yappy Chef. And they go, oh, Yappy Chef, I love you guys. Oh, you guys are the best. You know, you've got such nice products, and I've entered your competitions, and I get your newsletter. And I say, oh, what have you bought from us? No, I've never actually bought anything from you. <laughs> and you think like, well, how can we be a brand that is so loved, but we're still missing out on, on people who, who purchase things in our category, but they, they just don't always buy it online. And, and so there was that, you know, what is happening generically? And then you look at our own brand, we would get calls, our, our, um, our, our customer support team would receive a phone call and someone would say, hi there, I'm, I'm standing in Santon and just tell me where your store is. And we'd say, no, we, we don't have a store. And they'd say, oh. I really thought Yuppie Chef had stores. And I think this idea that, you know, you, you, you intro this by saying we were yuppieshef.com and, and now we're just Yuppie Chef, is that our customers just expect Yuppie Chef is a retailer. You know, Yuppie Chef is not an e-commerce company or a physical store company. Yuppie Chef is a retailer. And sometimes I want to go to the stores because it's Friday afternoon and I've forgotten someone's birthday. You know, there's, I, I need something right now. Or I've got this physical thing and I just want to take it back somewhere because it doesn't work and I'm so frustrated. Or, or browsing. You know, the idea of um, if it's my wife's uh, birthday and I 
I don't know what to get her, so let me just go and I'll just walk around and let me be inspired. That's really difficult to do online. It's really difficult to go through page after page of you know seeing a thumbnail and a white background as opposed to standing in front of a wall of products and going like, wow, that looks beautiful. I'm going to buy that. So there's different there's different needs that we have for for shopping, and and our, our customers see us as a as a single entity, and so we should serve them as a single entity. And and so we, we we didn't we weren't convinced, but we were we were convinced enough to um, to give it a shot. And we opened the Willowbridge store in uh, three years ago, 2017, and and it worked. Customers came in. And I remember the first day we were standing in the store watching all the customers browsing, and uh, this one uh, one wife said to her husband, like, "Wow, this is so convenient." And we think like, "What?" You know, compared to like sitting in your in your in your couch, you know, in in your underwear, ordering and we'll deliver it to your door. And yet, this was convenient for them. You know, there are times they wanted to get in their car, drive to the store, pay for something, and walk out with it. Like that, at times, that that feels convenient. And who were we to deny them and doggedly say, no? The only way you can buy from us is if you go online. Um, and so that that's the the kind of the that was the start of the journey. And we we got to seven stores last year um was our was our seventh store in october and we certainly have plans to continue but we're just going to kind of see now what uh, what happens in the, in the environment so i mean I, I see a lot of organizations who are doing great things and quite often they have like a massive transformative purpose um and i think yours is something around you know um having great customer service or, or world-leading customer service both in you know throughout your brand or different brands and so for me you know one of the things that we're trying to do is share best practice with other organizations and we're not seeing enough other organizations in South Africa having that same sort of mantra so if you're an organization you're starting out or you're, if you're a big organization and your customer service isn't that good what advice or what principles do you bring in because Yappy Shift is, is driven by you know, you and the team, but, but obviously that culture is created through some principles. What are those endearing principles of customer service that you're bringing through? You mentioned you don't pay your sales agents commission in the stores and you've sort of explained that because it's self-interest. How, how important is things like incentives and those sorts of things to your culture? Yeah, and there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there. So, um, I'll, I'll just start talking and we'll see where it goes. Uh, one of the things is, is not necessarily advice, but if I just talk about the, the origin story, Shane and I start Yappy Chef um, in my lounge and we had no money. We were, we were kind of doing some consulting work for other companies just to pay the bills and we, we launch. We go live with Yappy Chef in 2006 and we have 32 products from one brand and it's out there. And how do you get someone to buy from you? In that environment, you know, when you open a store in a in a physical location on day one, a thousand people walk past, and mm -hmm. and twenty of them walk in, and three of them make a purchase just because you're there, just because you exist, and you sell something, and 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 it was kind of convenient because they were walking past and they bought it. So prices, even if someone else on the other side of town was selling it cheaper, it doesn't matter because they're there now and they may as well buy it. And if the service wasn't so great, well, I can pick up the product and I can see what it is and I'll, I'll make my own decision. So I think a lot of retail doesn't really need great customer service. And a lot of businesses in general don't always need great customer service. They exist for, they've got some kind of monopoly in, in some way. I mean, I, and I use that word potentially liberally, but it's like, I don't, often we don't really have a choice. We're choosing between 
what do we got now? Three cell phone companies. And the difference between them is not so great, you know, hugely so whatever is the deal at the moment and I just go for it. But starting an online retail company in 2006 in South Africa in one category with no money for marketing, no mon monopoly of any kind, you know, it wasn't our own products, what we were selling, you could get in other places, that I think we had this real sense of that if we get a customer, we have to treat them so well because like this is all we've got. Uh, we have to, and I, and I kind of, yeah, I equate it to the, um, the the cactus in the desert. Like, if it gets a drop of rain, it's just got to like it's got to hold on to it. It's got to store it. Yeah. And you know, it's not it's not the kind of plant that's that's in the jungle where there's just rain every day and it's got abundant resources. We really felt like if someone is um, is uh, brave enough to shop with us, like flip, we've got to thank them for it. So we started handwriting cards in the beginning because we were like, I cannot believe that you actually trusted this online entity called Yucky Chef. You know, thank you so much. We're real, I promise. We're real people. She has our handwriting that proves it um, to, to actually win that customer over. And uh, we, we, we had a, a friend who was a, was a marketing consultant and uh, he said to us, you know, it's really all about word of mouth. And we're like, but we've only had like 10 customers ever. You know, how many people can they tell? And he said, you know, just, just don't worry about that. Take the money you would have spent on marketing. And, um, and the, one of the first things we did was free delivery on anything. Like be genuinely generous, like a, a generosity that isn't with terms and conditions apply and an asterisk. And, you know, like if someone buys a 50 rand spatula and it's in Kuruman and you deliver it, like I think the customer gets it. Like, wow, this company is, is generous. They, there's no, this isn't a trick here. This is something real. And then when they want a 10,000 rand coffee machine, they come back to us. So how can you be generous to, to win someone over when you don't have anything else? So that was our, our origin story. And, uh, and I think that we've always just taken the approach of, of how, what type of experience would I want when I'm checking out on the site? Do I, do I want to have to register before I check out? Or I just, do I just want to be able to, to check out? Like, do I want to give them my ID number? Uh, and I don't want to do that when I check out. That feels like an invasion of some sort of privacy. So what, what type of experience would we want uh, if we were shopping? And let's build that um, because we, if, we, if we do that, like that's really our differentiator. So, so I think that – and, and you, you spoke about the, the sales commission, the stores. I, it really grates me when I've, uh, I've been in a store, I've made a purchase, and then someone comes running up to me as I'm getting to the, the checkout and like sticks their sticker on my box you know, to – to kind of pretend like they helped me with the sale. It just feels icky. It feels like, I don't know. I'd just rather have someone who's serving me because they are, they feel part of, of what's happening. Part of what we're doing as a company, we have a, um, a group profit share, you know, so everyone is going to benefit from everyone's success. So I'm in, as incentivized to send you to another store, send you online as I am to make the sale in this store. So we try to, we try to create the systems and the, and the, the structures and the culture to, to do that, but we've got 150 people now, and we spread out around the country. It's uh, it's obviously harder than when when it was two people in the lounge, and and we don't get it right every time. And maybe there's people listening to this podcast who are, who are throwing their something at the radio or however you listen to podcasts because because they didn't have that experience. It's it's hard. It's hard to get it right at scale across across you know many thousands or tens of thousands of customers. But we certainly still consider it incredibly easy for a customer to leave us and go to someone else. Um, you just open a new tab in your browser and you've gone. Mm -hmm. So if we don't lock, look after this customer, they're gone. There is no lock in, um, in, in e-commerce and, and that certainly drives a lot of our, our thinking and behavior. For sure. And I think some of the other things that, I mean, if I look at other territories, 
the states most significantly, you know, their postal system, their ability to deliver cheap and quick and on time sort of enhances that experience. I mean, we know the guys at DHL are really trying to move into the rest of Africa and support things like this. What, what other sort of um, challenges are you seeing with e-commerce in this environment that you see can be solved? Because I think the one thing is that there seems to be, you know, entrepreneurs thrive where there's problems to be solved and there's certainly enough problems in Africa to solve them. But in terms of the e-commerce, I mean, we, we've sorted out the funding that, that the, you know, the, the payment sort of gateways, the fintech is, is, is fairly good now. I'd say almost leading Africa and South Africa is leading that. Would you agree? Well, I mean, payments was definitely one of the things that in the early years I, I would get very frustrated by because it was something that's so fundamental to our business and yet we have no ability to make it any better um, and, and, and fix it in some way. And, and we're a lot better. You know, the, the kind of 3D secure, verified by Visa, that type of... Um, process was was very clunky in the beginning and very poorly implemented by by the banks and by the kind of banking regulators bank server but it is better now um and and then there are also alternative payment methods and so that kind of ecosystem has evolved around around e-commerce delivery is another one which is um, which, which is an ecosystem which we don't directly, we don't physically drive anything to a customer because South Africa is a very big and spread out country um, for us to, to personally deliver to. So we do rely on it. And, and, and that ecosystem is still, is still in a kind of transition phase. You know, 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, couriers were all business to business. They, they picked up something from an office in the day and they dropped it off to an office in the day. That, that's what a courier was. And it was eight to five Monday to Friday, and then e-commerce comes along, and they kind of their business, their whole business shifts from business to business to business to consumer. So now I'll probably pick it up eight to five Monday to Friday, but now I need to deliver it to a customer who is at work during the day, but at home in the evenings, and actually would rather have it on the weekend, and would like to know down to the hour which slot you're going to deliver it in. And so suddenly you've got a whole different, a different type of of service that needs to be be created from scratch and when e-commerce was quite small uh, certainly going back kind of 10 years there wasn't necessarily enough um, to drive that to every corner of the country but you're starting to see you're starting to see that develop and uh, and and scale in some way and you, you've got the, the the almost the alternative uh, delivery types of companies that are that are cropping up and making it possible and even something like uber eats which is now um fetching from physical locations not just food but other products um, and sending it almost sort of solving that last mile problem by using retailers as the depot so you've got all these creative solutions that are coming which is only viable when an, uh, an industry reaches a certain scale and i think we're in that place now so i do think you're going to see a an acceleration you've obviously also got the actual software the ability to create a website when we started we had to do it ourselves it just wasn't anything that exists now you could probably on your own in your evening create a, an, an online store tonight so a lot of that is developed and i think that's what's going to certainly accelerate things um, pretty quickly so i saw also facebook just started doing something as well now like the, everybody's jumping on the bandwagon so to say i mean what do you see the future of e-commerce and retailing is, is it different? Is e-commerce and retailing different? Are they aligned? Um, are their futures coming together or drifting apart? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a very, it's a very um, subtle question, a well-worded question, because 
retail is not e-commerce, um, but even within retail, retail is a big category. If you think of retail covers a loaf of bread, a new motor vehicle, um, a, a airtime, uh, it, it, jewelry, uh, wedding cakes, like what exactly is, is retail? And so I think we, we almost, um, almost also fall into the trap of making generalizations that apply, I'm not sure I'm going to buy my next couch online. Um, maybe ever, maybe forever, because I, I kind of like to sit in the couch before I, before I bought it. And that's an incredibly clunky thing to deliver to me for me to sit and realize actually I don't like it, please take it back. So to say, um, to kind of paint the whole of retail with the same brush is probably, um, is, 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 is too simplistic. I, I don't think we can do that. Uh, so retail is going to evolve in, uh, into being more and more omnichannel or more and more online, depending on the category, depending on the type of goods. And some of it's going to happen very quickly and some of it's going to happen um, slower. And that is inevitable and it, it really is happening and it will happen. Whether, you know, even in the most advanced economies, um, online sales, a proportion of total retail is maybe still only 15%. So I think we're not getting to 90% in, you know, the next few years. It's still going to be a long time and there's still going to be stores um, there's still going to be malls and high streets and, and strip malls and, and that, that's all undeniably going to continue, even though COVID this year has, has, has shuffled things, some of it will return back to normal. But e-commerce is, a, is interesting because it also covers the non-traditional retailers. It, it covers the, the person who makes some art and craft thing at home and just wants to sell it online and, and, and get it out there. They, they have no interest and no need to have a, a physical retail presence and they're going to exist you know, purely online. And, and I think what you, 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 you might see is that you, you, you're going to see the kind of pure player online retailers, internationally someone like Amazon, locally someone like Take A Lot Too, I think will stay pure, pure player online um, retail. I, I, you know, Amazon now does have... Uh, they bought Whole Foods Market and have a few of their own stores. But if you look at the totality of what they retail, you know, the overwhelming majority is still pure play online. And then you've obviously got the, the physical retailers um, who are going to have a bigger proportion of, um, of their sales being online. But then you've got this, this kind of other category in the middle, which is just the sort of the democratization of the ability to sell things. The, 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 what that category, though, is probably you know, not going to be things with a barcode. It's not going to be things that I can directly compare because then I'll probably go to someone else who can sell it cheaper and has a bigger delivery network. So, so that kind of um, non-traditional retail is going to be all the things that people make or, or manufacture or whatever they have um, themselves and e-commerce opens them up to sell it, but they're not, they're not competing directly um, by trying, you know, Yapi, I don't think Yapi Chef could start again now. Uh, selling other people's products. If, if uh, you started again now, no, I don't think it would, would work. You do? Would you go digital e-commerce retail, yeah. or would you go some other direction? Is there yeah. anything? So, so if you if you take when I say uh, Yapi Chef couldn't exist now, Yapi Chef started selling other brands. We, we took brands that existed. QZ Pro was our first brand, and then Global Knives, and then early on would be Licorice, and these other brands that existed. You just couldn't buy them online. And we took those products online for the first time. And so we took products to a market who wanted them, um, and, and online, you go and buy it from us. That doesn't happen now because everything that has a barcode is available online for sale through another retailer, through the brand themselves, or through a, a pure player online retailer. So the idea that you could start another Yappy Ship selling other people's products as a standalone 
kind of specialist online retailer, I don't think that could exist. I, I don't, I, I think that that is, that's done. And, and certainly not two guys in a lounge, you know, slowly building up over time. It just, there isn't, it, it wouldn't, that wouldn't happen. Um, I, I think that, that you, that, that people who make things or have their own brand or whatever it is can set that up to sell online directly to the public. Um, and that could be something that they have made. They figured out how to make a, a new water bottle and they get it manufactured in China. They just want to retail directly. They don't want to retail through someone else. That could work. Or it could be some type of, um, you know, difference. Probably maybe we're starting now and you could go into like um, DIY food stuff at home. You know, how to make, make your own biltom at home and we're selling the spices and the things that you need. Or make your own. This. It's just a non-comparable product. It's not something I can get at another retailer. It's something which... I've kind of put together or I've, um, I live in Cape Town and maybe I'm going to go and like find all of the people in the winelands that make interesting things from olive oils and, and whatever home products and clean things that maybe don't have access. And I'll kind of collate those all together and, and, and sell them through some type of, of, of channel marketplace. And, you know, I think that that's what you'll start seeing. You'll start seeing now, but they're just, just buying a product with a barcode online, having delivered to my door. That is going to be dominated by, by the bigger retailers because they, they've realized now that they, that they have to be online and then the access to, to, to capital to, to be able to buy stock and products and, and get it delivered. That's, they will dominate that or you'll have the pure play online uh, retailers who obviously are already doing that and sell everything imaginable. So, so if you were back to being on your couch, what would you be looking to do today in, in, in 2020? Yeah, like as a young entrepreneur or someone who's yeah. maybe retrenched or, you know, you know, there's lots of people who are in a lot of pain right now and are looking at, at the, the new you know, opportunities, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, are you seeing it in South Africa? Yeah. Are you seeing it looking global? Are you seeing it? How, how you yeah, it, that? it's a, it, um, there is a lot of, there is a lot of opportunity online. There's no doubt about it. There's also an immense amount of competition. And, and I think what I would, what I would suggest, I'm going to, I'll go down a bit of a, a rabbit hole here, but I think it's relevant. What I would suggest is you, you have to figure out um, the bigger the pie that you bite, the more the competition is going to be, the smaller the pie that you bite, the, the, the less the competition is going to be. So what size of pie do you want to bite? You know, if you decide I'm going to make the next search engine that's going to allow everyone around the world to search for all the world's information, you know, it's an enormous pie. If you get it right, you're the next trillionaire, but you're also competing against Google. Uh, or if you decide... This is start small, like Jeff Bezos says, start small, think big. Isn't, it, isn't that... Yes, but you've got to... You, you've, got to, you've got to also be aware of when you start small, who are your competitors? And and uh, and and this is this is the um, Peter Thiel's got a book Zero to One, which I I often quote the very beginning part. I spoke earlier about monopolies, which is um, you know no, there's no profit without monopoly because when there's perfect competition, all profit gets competed away. So you have to think about like if I'm in my um, if I'm in my little neighbourhood and I decide um, I'm going to provide some sort of local service i'll pick up all of your your clothes and take it to the dry cleaner who am i competing against the best company in new york i'm not competing against them because they're not here they're not doing that and so i'm biting off a small enough pie where the competition is less and the trouble with online is that we move online and we don't realize that i'm competing against 
everyone in the world. So, oh, I'm going to provide um, English lessons online. You know, I'll help people speak better English. Like, I'm competing against everyone in the world who can speak English. You know, a billion people I'm competing against. If I say, I'll come to your house in my neighborhood in Cape Town and teach you English, you know, one in one person, well, I'm only competing against the people who can go to your house in Cape Town and teach you your English in person. So, I think it is about deciding, it, you know, online, this, this, I, we're, a, we're a predominantly online company. I'm passionate about online. But the danger with online is that we bite, we bite off too much. We try and compete too big. And so, you know, Yuppie Chef started, which is we were South Africa and we were only kitchen and we were, uh, you know, delivery, we were only e-commerce. We, we kind of decided that's what we were going to be. We weren't going to be every category in every country around the world. We sort of bit off something and we said, that's it. That's what we're going to that's what we're going to do. And, and so I think that the danger with your, your Jeff Bezos quote is to say, well, I'm, I'm going to compete everywhere on everything. I'm just going to start small. I think you'll be wiped out there. You've got to decide I'm going to compete in a small space and then we'll see where it happens over time, where it goes. So, I mean, are you seeing the future of South Africa as, as bright with lots of opportunities? Are you, where do you see Africa, South Africa? Uh, you know, the, the, the challenge, what I've seen, and maybe you've seen it similarly in the, last, in the last few weeks, is that people have either been the busiest they've ever been in their lives, or they've been sitting at home, probably unemployed or about to be unemployed. Is that a, a crisis time like this ends up kind of bifurcating the economy, uh, even more so into the haves and the have-nots. And so my answer, like, you know, the, the stats which now say GDP in the first quarter um, dropped by whatever, 15% or something. Mm -hmm. um, the reality is that it's not like every company dropped by 15%. Mm -hmm. It's that a bunch of companies dropped by 100% and yeah. some companies grew by 50% and on average it was minus 15%. So is the future bright for South Africa or for Africa? For some people, yes. For some people it's very dark. On average, you know, we're going to kind of head up somewhere and I think there's going to be a long struggle for a long time. Are there opportunities in South Africa and in Africa? Absolutely. Are people going to suffer because of this, this immense um, inequality in society? Absolutely. And, and so I guess it's, it's, a, it's choosing to, to, to take on, I, I'm willing to, to take a risk. I'm willing to try and build something, create something that hopefully succeeds for me and looks after my family and hopefully also then has a spillover effect into you know, many people around me. Um, but I, I think it's too simplistic. I think in, in a lot of the more developed companies, countries, um, in a lot of Scandinavian countries with huge social nets, you'd probably say, yeah, if everyone is going to be fine um, and some people will succeed a bit better. I think in South Africa, you're going to say, there are going to be some people who succeed incredibly well and there will be uh, many people who are, who are going to continue to, to struggle for a long time because, because, because the inequality in our country is so real and so deep. For sure. Yeah, we've got some challenges, I think. Uh, I think also some opportunities, the young uh, mobile marketplace we have. I mean, there, there seems to be this flavor that entrepreneurship, either by default or under pressure from COVID, is coming big time in Africa. Hmm. What advice would you have, or, or what are your principles of leadership as an entrepreneur that, that you would share with young entrepreneurs? Because you talk about risk-taking, but there's... You know, risk taking is is related to how much finance or financial backing you can get. Some of these guys just aren't able to get that access to finance. Yeah. Um, some people are unemployed, so they don't also have that 
that luxury either. But some people will never get jobs because there just isn't those opportunities. So they're going to have to do something. What would be your sort of yeah. advice for up and coming entrepreneurs? Principles for success. Yeah, the, the, the challenge with, um, with, with any entrepreneurial journey is uh, certainly my experience uh, and what I've seen around is that it always takes a lot longer than, than people mm -hmm. think, um, certainly than, than we think. I think there's maybe you know, a handful of stories and maybe it's because those ones end up getting turned into movies or books that we read them and we think that's the standard is that I can, I, I, maybe I can quit my job or maybe I've just lost my job or, you know, I, I've got enough to survive for the next six weeks. And then, you know, so this thing is going gonna, is gonna to make it. It's going to make it. It's going to make it big. Uh, you know, Yapishev, for Shane and I, it was five years before our salary came from Yapishev. It took us five years of working. And by then we even employed other people and we had offices, but we still needed to be supporting ourselves through other work that we were doing. You know, we, we still continue to consult to other companies and do work for them um, because it was a, it was a five-year journey just to get to the point where now we could stop all our other work and Yapishev paid our salaries. And, and what I see um, very often is, is a, it's just an unrealistic expectation of how quickly it's going to, the thing that I'm embarking on is going to do. So, you know, obviously that, that, that means if you can get access to finance, just being aware of, of how much is going to be needed and, and, being careful of taking on finance, knowing that whatever it is, it's got to last a very long time. We're probably going to have to go back and ask for more. And, and therefore, how much control of your company are you going to end up giving up? So there's obviously that. Or if you don't have access to, to raising some sort of finance or capital, it's just how long can I support myself um, before this thing that I'm growing is going to support me? And then make sure it is a very long time. And I, I, t I tell the story of growing a spinach plant and, um, and you grow the spinach plant from a seed and and you're really, really hungry. So as the first bit of green like pops through the ground, you snip it off and eat it because you're so hungry. And then you wait and a little bit of green pops through the ground and you snip it off and eat it. You know, you're going to kill that plant. You have to let it grow. You have to let the leaves be really big before you start eating from it um, so that it can sustain itself without you devouring it. And, and for a lot of entrepreneurs, I think there's a, uh, this thing needs to support me really, really quickly. And so, so to, think, to think a lot longer term, um, and that this is going to take quite a long time. And then to have the, the kind of resilience and the, uh, the tenacity to keep going because no, no journey um, that's going to be over a number of years is going to be smooth. It's going to be, you know, every year we kind of think, well, what's going to hit us this year? And 2020 was certainly a doozy, but every other year has also been massive things that have hit us. And so it's like, well, we're going to, we're going to get through. For, for me, I'm very grateful that... Uh, it's been Shane and I on this journey together as partners. Um, mm. that where that is possible, I know that partnerships are very difficult and they come with their own challenges, but there's certainly been days when I wouldn't have got out of bed and tackled the day if, mm. if, I, if I didn't have, have Shane who was, who was there to, to sort of support and encourage it and vice versa, there's days where he wouldn't have um, been able to do it without me. So where that is possible, I, I would certainly recommend doing it in a, in a team. Um, and yeah, those are probably the two, two primary things I would say. I mean, often I think of the word hard work because I think it comes down to you get late night. I mean, no one wants to work late nights. We all have families and other things you want to do, but it really has got to be about putting in those, those hours. Yeah. How, how do you feel about that? And the other thing I was thinking is yeah, that resilience side of thing is how do, you, how do you stay from packing it in? How do you stay the course when 
everybody's telling you give this up you know <laughs> yeah but how do you, it's like that one meter away from the gold type of you know digging the trenches and you're one meter away from the gold and the guy gives up and the guy takes over and mines the gold but yeah. um yeah yeah i mean so so on the hard work side i i had my first um son in the january of 2006 and we started yuppie chef in the well, that year i mean we launched in august and so um i and, and we were running yuppie chef while still doing uh, work to kind of pay the bills from somewhere else so it was it was an incredibly difficult period of time and i and i i think about how little sleep um, I had it and how hard it worked and I, I wouldn't wish, <laughs> wish that on myself now. Now I feel particularly lazy in, in comparison to that. So, so yes, there's, there, there's an enormous amount of, of hard work, but, but I do think you kind of, if something needs to be done, you, you do just do it. I don't think it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's not really, it's sort of an involuntary reaction because there's nobody else. There's no one who can say, well, I don't feel like going into work today. You know, you are it. So you, you do keep going. Um, in terms of the resilience and packing it in, I, I've, I do think it's about team and it's about, um, you know, if you, if you set your alarm clock to get up and run in the morning and the alarm clock goes off at six o'clock, you think like, ah, oh, just, you know, not today. But if you know that someone's waiting outside and about to ring your doorbell, you get out of bed and you do it. So it is about, um, I, th I think that's resilience probably comes a lot from, from having external people who are in some way, um, you're 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 involved with or, or accountable to you know whether it's an investor or a partner or or an employee or a or a supplier or even customers is a a, a sense of this this is bigger than just is just me um, and uh, so yeah and I th that that probably is the case but but also it's not for everyone I, you know I think like that's the other thing is is entrepreneurs could start and. And realize, you know what? I'd rather go work for someone else. If everyone on the planet was an entrepreneur, um, it wouldn't work because <laughs> we 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 can't have you know some businesses need to grow to be bigger than just the people who founded it. So not everyone's a founder. So so that is something which I suppose um, there shouldn't be any sense of, of of real failure, failure, or guilt or shame of I tried something and and you know what? I actually was a lot happier and a lot more comfortable when when I was a piece of a puzzle and not necessarily the one in charge and. And, and, and that's going to be okay as well. For sure. It was great catching up. I see we're basically out of time. It's uh, hit, hit the mark. We really appreciate your insights. I could, I could spend all day chatting to you and, and no doubt we'll go for a coffee and chat afterwards. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I also had children very young. I was 20, just turned 25 when I had my first boy as well. And I remember those days of, I, I said to him the other day, I started drinking coffee then. And I know why, because I was working very hard. <laughs> <laughs> and getting no yeah. sleep um i don't know if i could do that again I, he's 20 now so i don't know if i could do that again so yeah how life yeah. has changed but i think that for me this corona has has sort of when it when it happened i realized this is the calling of all entrepreneurs this is what's going to separate real entrepreneurs from those who want to be entrepreneurs and I knew it then, and I, and I sort of knew that lockdown, that three week, I looked at what happened with China, I, was, I wasn't convinced it was going to be three weeks mm. at all. I sort of said it's going to be a three to six month plan. It's obviously longer than that, I think now. Mm. Um, but it, I think it's really great to speak to you, to get those insights. Um, I wish you the best of luck. I think you're doing some great stuff. My wife spends way too much money with your company. And um, it's been fantastic to meet you and congratulations on the award last year. 
and keep on doing what you're doing, man. It's inspirational. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah.